about what we have here? I mean, we obviously have 20 pages of We have 20 <laughs> pages of stuff. I think, I think if we keep trying to make it perfect, it will be another seven months of delay. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to do that. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Not to our loyal fans. Our loyal, what was it, like 20 people who listened to our trailer? Over the past which, seven months. Which yeah. is more than I expected, I'm not going to yeah, lie. Yeah, it definitely is. It was like 27 people. Oh, so. my God. I know. That's okay. I know. I'm just like, who's looking for this? <laughs> I know. Who wants to listen to us? I know, but we should we should put something out there for them. <laughs> I, them I, I agree. Um, so on that note, uh, welcome to Kitchen Counterculture. Hey. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm Savannah. <laughs> and uh, we're finally here. We're finally we here. We made it. We did it. We uh, have not died. Uh, we are we are alive and well um, in in Lansing. We have housing. So congrats. Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad that we're able to finally do this. Getting here, we're sitting down, we're making, recording this episode, finally. Oh, yeah. Um, no. I know that it's been a while, and, uh, and you know I do apologize for the delay. If there's anyone here listening to this episode who listened to our trailer however long ago and has been waiting, maybe, or has forgotten about it even, um, hopefully this will find its way to you if you care. And uh, Yeah, no, we, uh, we, in the time since our uh, tr- trailer came out, we have gotten new microphones, um oh my gosh so like when we when we published this i had already written out like a whole 20 page script about housing in america and we had like a queue of potential episodes to do which still do we still do we've tur- we've turned it into an unordered list because this is a hobby <laughs> and we weren't really approaching it from a very uh, sustainable way i think at least I wasn't. So. Yeah. So I think that we should, um, you know, I think that uh, going... Because uh, you want to? Yeah, I think that's that's true. Doing something just because you want to is is pretty... Can be a radical act these days. I agree. So. Yeah, I feel like in some ways I think we kind of had like a mental hurdle to get through. Of just trying to make it perfect instead of just making it. Yeah, I agree, and I definitely find myself with that in a lot of my projects. Um, but we're not doing that. Yeah. Today, today we're here and we're recording, and we. You want did... to talk to you about housing? Yeah. And uh, how you get it? Why it's hard to get? Why so, why and why so many people don't have it? Yep. Um. We're in a pretty good spot for us personally because we live in a in what is called a housing co-op, which means we technically own a house. We do technically own a house, along with eight other people who all live here with us. We all uh, have a stake in the house and the property. Uh, we're all we all you know, work together to take care of it. We live together, and it's it's been amazing. It's been an awesome atmosphere. It's definitely been something different than anything that I've ever grown up with or saw myself really doing growing up in a very uh, middle-class, very capitalistic household. Uh, yeah, I don't think as a teenager I would have ever imagined myself living with a bunch of housemates. I'm very introverted. Uh, I was going to, I was, you know, in studying, um, well, 
initially biology and then I got into engineering. But the whole point of STEM was that I could be smart and not have to talk to people, um, which is bullshit. You still have to talk to people. <laughs> um, that's just a life skill everybody needs. And the co-op has definitely been helping me in that regard a lot. Like my natural inclination is to isolate and you can't do that here, but like in a good way. Like, we have a bedroom in privacy, but we also have public spaces and group meals and people who can just be around. <laughs> it's Yeah, I agree. I think it's been very good for that. Like, even when I've sort of felt, uh, I guess, depression sort of sneaking on me, if you will, sometimes, it has been good to be able to just surround myself with people, good people who have good energy. And it also is helpful And if we want to do something, if we want to achieve something maybe for the house or... You know, sometimes even personally, it's helpful to have people around you to maybe help with that. Yeah, like, by or myself, I will just criticize everything that I think to do to the point that I end up not doing it. And it is really hard to do that when you have a whole bunch of housemates here who are all just like, everything you do is really cool. We support it. Here, have a garden to play around in. <laughs> uh, it's It's been nice. I feel like a better person. <laughs> Just having been here for, what is it, like, a, it's been a year now, right? Yeah, it has been a year now. It we has been, been a year. Here a whole year. Yeah, I agree. I think that it has been it's been good for me as well. It, and it is very hard to get down to yourself and let uh, self-doubt win when you have such supportive people around you. I've been lucky in that regard my whole life, I think. I've just managed to surround myself with some very awesome supporting people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I digress. Let's get started, and let's jump into housing, or why can't you just build a hut? Yeah, so, um, oh man, alright. So, the problem with housing has started, started many, many years ago. This isn't uh, a new, a particularly new issue. New, I suppose, in the scheme of human history, but not but new in this country. Not for the modern era. It is so well entrenched in our culture that some people are surprised to find that there is a housing crisis. But like we've all met homeless people. Mm-hmm. And 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 what the and what that housing crisis means. What what caused it, and how do we perhaps maybe move past it? Now, this last year has been a pretty wild ride for everybody. Uh, I mean, even us, us included, um, and you know the epic, not the economic ramifications of Corona, uh, are I feel are going to directly die into the topic uh, that we're talking about today. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, before Corona, it was a, getting half a job was pretty easy. I think most people worked some a half a job, maybe two or three. Um, the yeah, one thing most people didn't have was a single job that could pay enough money for you to make rent and also pay for any other utilities that you have. And, like, yeah, a lot of people who have that don't quite realize just what a luxury it is to have one job, one commute, one schedule that stays consistent. Um, For people working in restaurants and retail, which is a pretty large chunk of the workforce, um, that was us before Corona shut down everything. And the irony of it all is that working two or three half jobs ended up costing and taking more time than working one full-time job. 
yeah, it's multiple commutes, multiple schedules, unpredictability, and you just kind of have to be available all the time if you want to get enough hours. And they want you to give full-time effort, full-time availability with none Not of Not full-time pay. <laughs> no benefits. And if you're a student, it was <laughs> – there's three schedules, and you have half the availability of everybody else. But the rent you pay is just as high as everybody else either. Yeah, and, like, you can't afford any of it without financial aid, but, like, financial aid still requires a minimum number of credit hours, and it also doesn't always cover all of your living expenses. So, yeah. So now you just have a half job on top of your full-time student hours. And, yeah, so uh, college broke me for a little bit there. I'm not going to lie. And, yeah, and, like, while all this is going on, we keep seeing, like, all around the city just more and more apartment complexes and condos going up. And they're, they're all named The Lofts or something like that. And they all look <laughs> The Regency exact- above Target in East Lansing. Yeah, they all look exactly the same. Like, how many clashing aesthetics could we put on one wall and just be like, Look how hip and modern we are. Don't we look just like California? Like This is what the West Coast writes. This is what will make the West Coast people come here cuz they're all leaving California, right? This right? will bring the rich people into our city. Come get a studio for 1200 a month. <laughs> yeah. <it'll, laughs> Which is it'll a, be great. It's great. And like the worst part is is that it kind of works cuz on campus housing is more expensive so east lansing developers can do this and make money so they do it more and working families on the other hand who's building houses for y'all no one so you have all these people who work in lansing that have to take public transport the route one to east lansing every day for work and it's getting harder and harder to find affordable housing that's even close to that section that's along that line for this very reason is that people who want who have to work those jobs want to try to get a house that puts them at least somewhat close to where the bus they're taking is lest they have to walk you know half an hour 40 minutes or take three transfers to get there mm-hmm. yep and i swear the developers know this so like everything on that strip just keeps getting more and more expensive every year um so like you could move out elsewhere but then you need a car which is another set of expenses <laughs> And, yeah, it's just, it's, here's the thing. Uh, Housing is, like, it's expensive, but there's really no reason for it to be, technically, you know? Yeah, and, like, homelessness is a factor through all of this. It's, like, the constant threat that keeps us working, right? And so it's the thing that even if you do have to, get a house who's that's a 35 minute walk away from the one you get the house that's 35 minutes and you wake up an extra 40 minutes ahead of everybody an hour for everybody else so that you can make your 40 minute walk to get to the one so you can get to work because the other option is that your kids are on the street yep yeah and like it, it feels crazy to complain about it because we all know it could be worse like because every day we see people who have it worse on the streets asking for change yes while you're making that commute you'll come across 10 other people who like have it worse than you yeah it it feels insane to complain about grinding for rent when you're like well you have a home to live in so it could be worse and i feel like that's kind of how they keep us grinding like this that's 
it's it's a race away from the bottom, you know? Yeah. And in the U.S., there's more. we have more than 300 million people in this country. And more than 560,000 of those people are home are, are, are houseless, unsheltered. And that all was, it's going to do, and that number is only going to go up. Yeah, like those are pre-corona numbers, mind you. The last four years, homelessness has rose in our country. <laughs> For the fourth year straight, we have about, according to the last search, 580,000 people at the end of 2020. And that did not include corona or post-corona numbers. Like, this number is absolutely going to keep increasing as we slowly start to understand the damage and the effect that how corona is going to do and will do to housing in this country. And, yeah, and, like, the thing that gets me is that, all right, homelessness is kind of like a spectrum, right? You know, there's 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 people who are kind of staying at a friend's house and, you know, for a couple of weeks so you can get on your feet. There's being in your car. And then, then there's, like being unsheltered which is sleeping on the streets which is incredibly dangerous and there are hundreds of thousands of people in that situation which i mean like we just kind of take that for granted because we've seen it our whole lives but if you expand out across the scope of human history like it's insane (laughs) It is insane that anybody should be unsheltered. Like, think about, like, even if you set aside all the vacant homes that are around, because there are there are more than enough ho- homes in this country for everybody who needs them. Even if that wasn't the case, human beings have been building housing since before our particular species evolved. Like, with the, when the Earth was covered in ice, we were stretching animal hides over mammoth tusks. People, like, people have built huts and yurts and tents and teepees and longhouses and roundhouses and pueblos and temples, shacks, igloos. Like, there's, there are so many ways to put four walls and a roof around a person going back to time yeah. immemorial. Like, exactly. <laughs> like, like, we have, it's a very modern idea that housing is going to cost you a ton of money. Because it actually doesn't. To make a shelter can cost you almost nothing. Yeah, like, people left to their own devices can and will do what it takes to survive. Like, this has been the case for time immemorial. Um, The problem is that in a lot of cases... Every species does this. Like, it's not a special human thing either. Like, octopi make shelters. Yeah. Like, it's not... It's just a part of being alive. Bees make shelters. We know because we tend them. Yeah, you know, the the only thing that we do unique is, like, arrest people for staying in tents. Yeah, a leafcutter bee isn't going to arrest another leafcutter bee for making a shelter in a type of tree it doesn't want. It's not going to say you can't do that. Yeah. Do you have a permit to be in that oak? Like, that's right. not, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we, uh, oh my gosh, like, people build tent cities and then governments tear them down. Uh, yeah. People make tiny house villages. The city of L.A. tore one down. Like, it's just... I, we... I can't help but notice that your hive is uh, only rated for 30,000 uh, occupants, <laughs> and you seem to have 2.3 million. Um, do you have anything to say for yourself? And so so we've determined that this hive is unsafe, but we're not going to actually do anything to make sure that you bees have anywhere else to go, so... Yeah. We're melting it down for your safety. Yeah, like, that's not... That doesn't happen to any other species except humans. We're the only ones who will go out of our way to find someone 
not interacting with us and tell them that they can't do it. Homesteading? Nah, not not legal anymore. Can't do it. Yep. Yeah, for real. You wanna you wanna go park like just set up a tent out in the state grounds because you don't have a, another place to live. They'll fucking find you for that shit. <laughs> it's dumb. And it is ridiculous. Barbaric. Yeah, like, like and, yeah. and we've made it illegal. Like we have made it illegal to build tent cities. We've made it illegal to have any kind of like to exist in a way that doesn't require you to spend money in the way that our system wants you to. We have made it systematically over the years illegal to do it to the point that existing outside of the system is illegal. Yeah. And like, even if it's not, it's punished, you know, there. So I think this is why some people will support like a hands hands off, like free market system. You know, I think that's like the theory, right? Is that in a truly free market, theoretically, you should be able to just build a home if you have the resources and competition would favor builders who can provide the best housing while consuming the least resources, or at least that's the the theory. Um, But that's not what we have. We have building codes and zoning regulations, and we have so fully decoupled the cost of housing from the availability of the resources that make housing. And... Yeah, I think that kind of drives part of the push towards republicanism, you know, is the idea that I can't even make my own prosperity without the state stepping in and stopping me. Yeah, and we we see that so much with any kind of regulation from, you know, Nestle wanting to deregulate how we give water to companies wanting to regulate how they can, you know, how they can eliminate resources and waste. And, you know, they see it as the government stepping in and forcing them to pay fines and forcing you to incur more costs as they pay fines and have to take more expensive routes to d- remove that stuff. But the problem that we all forget, I will never forget the words professor of a professor I had. We were talking, we were going over OSHA regulations and why they exist. And the professor said the words to me, every regulation is written in someone else's, probably multiple people's blood. And that is true. If you look at history, it's true. We tried, as, as much as I understand the desire for a free market, we tried that, and it, we actually have tried that. Yeah, and it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. work. It never works. Whether it le- whether it's in you know ma- whether it's massive companies where you end up with sugar trust and meat trust and mm-hmm. the jungle. <laughs> yeah, or like in the term, and specifically in terms of housing, right? Mm-hmm. So, say we got rid of building codes, and you could just make whatever dwelling you needed to to survive, like. On an individual level, I feel like that's just securing a basic human right. Um, the problem is when people have a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, and that leads us to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Where so. we tried this exact thing. Rapidly advancing technology was happening. Factories were shooting up. Jobs were booming. The cities reeked of coal, smoke, and opportunity. And people were flocking to the cities in search of jobs. And all of those people needed places to stay. And the free market did exactly what it's supposed to do. Owners started building factories. They hired laborers. And they even built homes for those laborers. The cheapest possible Using the cheapest housing. possible home. <laughs> <laughs> and while charging them as much as they possibly could. Yeah. Uh, I. E. Money, Ma- money, I. E. I. E. Minimize... <laughs> Minimize spending, maximize profits, which on paper, you're like, well, yes, of course, capitalism, this is how it works. Unfortunately, when you're minimizing the cost you're spending by using 
old lumber, some of it mag- some of it termite ridden, people's houses fucking collapse on them or burst into flame. Sometimes both. And shit was gnarly back in the day. Um, that's kind of what spurred the whole rise of housing reformers who were calling for building codes and sanitary regulations. So you had people like Lawrence Vailer. I really hope I'm pronouncing that last name right. But um, so 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 Lawrence here figured that the the probably the cleanest simplest solution to all of this was just building codes. You create like a a minimum standard for what housing has to be if you want to like start building and creating these developments. So um, so that when people move from their ostensibly poor farms in the backcountry, they don't move into the city only to realize, oh, God, this is way worse than anything I had back on the farm. <laughs> yeah. This is disgusting. We didn't have this many rats, and I ran a literal pig farm. Like, yeah. So, like, building codes <laughs> came from a good place, and they did raise the standards for housing on a large scale when enforced. Um, the problem is that, like, you know, the it kind of creates like an artificial increase to the cost of housing without actually securing anybody's access to it. Which is what happened is that they started saying, okay, fine, we'll meet these demands. And then they upped the cost of housing beyond what those workers could afford. Beyond what, you know, even like the cost of maintaining it is. I I think, (laughs) I think sometimes that like regulations, I don't know if they're as strict as they are or if builders are using them as an excuse. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not part of this, but I do know that, I don't know. The, the, the big problem is that there's still, like, an underlying power imbalance between workers and renters and the owner class, and building codes alone can't fix that. Like, they weren't enough to stop the quote-unquote slumlords from their general slumlordery. That's right. Slumlord's gonna slumlord, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, an interesting note on that. Um, so every document that I found on this just kind of throws around the word slums and urban blight, like doctors casually discussing this cancer upon the city. Um, yeah, and it's like, and, and we use, and again, it's just like one of those things where, where a real issue gets reduced down to buzzwords and terms. Things that politicians and talking and talking heads and people who feel like they want to have an opinion can say. And this has been true since time immemorial. I mean, again, we're seeing it here. Again, slum and urban blight, that started in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, when this industrial revolution was happening. Yeah, and it was kind of taken for granted. Like, well, clearly, look at it. That's what a slum is. But, like, let, let's analyze what, what they're talking about. Um, is places where poor people exist... <laughs> Um, and are oppressed and sometimes do things that have been deemed illegal because they're poor and oppressed. Um, exactly. So now, so we throw a label on it and just be like, this is, (sighs) this is the slum. Slums are bad places. Slums are things that, that appear out of nowhere in a city, like a, like a cancer and they grow and the, (laughs) we have to stop it. We don't know what causes them or why or how. Yeah. That's, it just seems to always be around the browns. Seems to be the <laughs> main, the mental framework that a lot of the early reformers It just were seems to always happen around the poor people and the brown people. And yeah. you're like, hmm. Yup. So, so what you see happening is like cities are like experiencing this general degradation and mm-hmm. poor people are living in squalor. 
And then rich people look at them and go, "You gross, filthy street rats, take their money and dip." Right. And they're, then... they're bringing crime to our city, and I mean, we can talk about crime. We're definitely going to talk about crime on another episode. It's a whole can of worms. It as really a concept. is. But let's just leave it at crime doesn't come out of nowhere. Most people, most criminals, aren't committing crimes for the kicks. Yep. <laughs> Things like desperation and not having a home lead to crime. But moving on. Yeah. So um. anyway, where were we? Right. So housing reformers. Uh, cities are starting to degrade in quality. Right. Poor um, people living in squalor. Rich people are seeing them and go, ew, gross. Dipping. Um, and as uh, this trend of rich people doing everything in their power to pretend that the poor don't exist. Um, Rather than, you know, actually helping them. We will see this trend repeat often. So back to the Industrial Revolution. Rich people are moving out to the peripheries. Cities are starting to lose value. Um, that is, the money is leaving. Because, yeah, the problem is exacerbated because now any money the city was getting, because, again, the cities aren't getting, aren't getting tax money from the poor people, the rich people, not wanting to be around the poor people, leave the city, meaning there's getting no money now. Mm-hmm. And as rich people are moving out to the periphery, like, yeah, things just got... Things got so bad that even the real estate brokers knew that there was a problem. And then the Great Depression hit. And with it came a big old spike in homelessness. And yeah, so so the Industrial Age and the Gilded Era were like as chaotic as they were horrifying. Uh, the dream of stable, high-quality, affordable housing was something that cut deep across the working class because for the first time like that was i mean this is sort of the birth of the american dream in a way yeah 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 and like it's so like it's so of course it has a mass appeal to people and so many people are going there but so many others are finding that the dream isn't that (laughs) or isn't as attainable as they as it might have once been thought and it was in this environment that you had a surge of reform and progressive thought. Maybe one of the really earliest like progressive surges we saw as a society came forth post Gilded Era, post industrial during those early days of the Industrial Revolution, where the the kind of laissez faire free market attitude of the government had gone out of control. Um right. And so and, and so out of this the progressives came forth, they're right, talking about visions of a better future. Housing housing codes, you know. Ways to keep the American dream available for everybody. Right. Uh, and some, some made it their mission to see every American a decent home. And those were, and they called themselves the Housers. All right. So this takes us into the 20th century. Um, the fight for public housing. Um, the Housers had a vision. They did not all agree how to get there. But they wanted to see every American in a home. And as quickly as this group formed, they split into warring factions because the left. Um, Indeed. So one faction was focused uh, mostly on just, like, ridding American cities of the slums. The, the leading theory at the time was that the filth and squalor of the city has a degradating effect on the moral character of the people. Um... So, like, their focus was to just solve the immediate concrete problem. Um, Coupled with, so, like, this coupled with people being more motivated 
by fear than inspiration had like a pretty solid political appeal. Like you could just point and tout the evils of the slums and it, it actually worked pretty hard to garner sympathy. It worked pretty well to garner sympathy for the movement. Yeah, and then there, and then I mean, we had others, right? There's like our, our buddy Catherine, whose last name I don't. Oh have. shit! That's because I edited this thing and I messed it up. Her name is Catherine Bauer. Catherine Bauer, <laughs> got it. Uh, who were less motivated? Uh, she was so she was less motivated by the horror of what the city was, and more by the hope of what it could be. Uh, these people were very much driven uh, by a love of modernist architecture. They loved all the public housing things going on in Europe at the time, because around this time, Europe had already, before we even started doing it, Europe had already. They were in going the UK, through the same crisis. We're going through the same thing earlier than us. Mm-hmm. And like like so many things, they Europe just happened to Europe just a little bit earlier because they're just a little bit ahead of us in a way, <laughs> as far as societies uh, rising and falling. Anyway, um, <laughs> so inspired by their archite- architecture. And their gar- and their use of green space and garden planning, um, as well as a growing number of thool- uh, theories about uh, the school of architecture and what it means internationally, um, they their motivation was to take a holistic and livable approach to the design and function of our modern cities. Uh, she was Bauer was quite insistent on public housing as a broad based program for the lower and middle classes. They felt that if high quality affordable public housing was built at the periphery of large cities. People would move in naturally, and slum removal wouldn't be necessary. So public housing wasn't supposed to be a poor people program with poor people stigma. It was like a natural step in the planning and design of sensible, living, livable cities. It was taking the fact that people need a place to live into account while building the city, which should be common sense, but as we will see, still remains a radical concept. And uh, it was, became pretty obvious around then that neither faction was going to exactly get what they wanted because of so much infighting. A lot of the early fight, unfortunately, there was a lot more infighting amongst each other than against the government and the policies that were inhibiting the cause. Yeah. So, in 1934, the Housers get together in a big old conference to decide on a united political front. Are we going to focus on slum removal, which is important and has much needed political appeal? Um... But, like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, fuck, I, I messed that up. Oh, yeah, so the they have this conference. They decide slum removal's important. It's got the political appeal. It gets the people galvanized. But it's, like, really expensive unless there's public housing, you know. Just tearing down places as a starting point doesn't really make economic sense, even from the most cold, calculating perspective. Right. And so, and this is sort of how we wound up with two-tiered housing. And because while all this was going on, the real estate empires and companies were also getting together. And were trying to figure out a way to strike back against what they viewed as the commies trying to take over their country. You see, real estate folks, <laughs> surprisingly enough, weren't exactly okay with their property values tanking year after year. You know, because of all the slums. They wanted to draw... <laughs> that they made. <laughs> that they made. And they wanted to draw, they wanted to draw affluent people and their money back to the cities, you know, to revive all their money. Because again, it was around here that also private property and real estate was really becoming a big factor because mm-hmm. of all the people moving into the cities. Yep. City real estate was now a big industry. You wanted it because people needed spaces to build their shitty homes for the poor people. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> so, you, so you can make a good bit of money selling them the land for them to put their shitty apartment building on. Yeah, so go figure. The, the real estate people come up with this really brilliant idea to replace all the old building stock and introduce a little bit of luxury to the city using free market means. Um, so this bring, uh, enter the National Association of Real Estate Boards, or we'll call them NAREB, led by Herbert U. Nelson. Um, Nelson and his ilk hated public housing on ideological grounds. They were afraid of public housing subsuming the private housing market and, quote, fostering dependency among the poor. Um, so the idea is that if they can solve the problem through the free market, then that'll shut these housers up, right? If nobody's homeless, we'll have fixed the problem. They Which, can again, shut up. <laughs> it is something that we've heard time and time again now for many, many issues, not just housing. We hear that today for everything from education to uh, infrastructure, yeah, the same so thing. Public works won't do it. it. Let the free market solve it. But time and again, they ran into the same issue that we run into now, which is the free market doesn't let you do shit. I mean shit if it doesn't generate profit. Slumlords are making too much money on the backs of those poor people to want to just sell their buildings and have them be rebuilt. And building infrastructure is also, you know, really expensive to them. They already built their shitty building. They don't want to have to build it again. Yeah. And Giving it, selling it to the government isn't going to help because they have private equity invested in this now. It's right. their money. So say you want to build a luxury condo housing and you're trying to, like, take it away from the hands of this quote-unquote slumlord. Like, that. hey, that dude's making too much money. He's go, He ain't going to sell out for cheap. So say you spend all this money on this degraded building that was made in the cheapest fashion possible and... It's a miracle it's still standing. So now you got to tear it down and replace it. That is not economically feasible under a pure free market Especially system. since the idea is that the people living there are going to be low-income families who aren't going to be paying you a ton of money. Yeah, like so, where's so you the don't money have the from? guaranteed income that you would get from, say, oh, East Lansing putting in a luxury income apartment that costs $1,000 apartment above <laughs> apartment yeah. on Grand River. Like, it doesn't have that same return on investment. So... In this free market system, there's no reason to do this. Yeah, so so our friends with the at the real estate uh, and Reb, we'll call them. So so they tried a new approach, um, begging the government for money. <laughs> uh, they they proposed establishing some metropolitan land commissions. The commission would use eminent domain to acquire blighted land. And then federal and local subsidi subsidies known as write-downs would be used to sell the land to private developers below market rate, thus getting around our little free market problem. So enter government economists Alvin Hansen and Scott Greer concocted a similar scheme, but with something closer to a pure grant system instead of subsidized loans. So some key pieces of legislation that came out of this time, the Housing Act of 19, the Housing Acts of 1934 and 1937, um, the 34 Act created the mortgage system and encouraged building at the periphery, setting up for the spread of suburbia. And the 37 Act, also known as the Wagner Act, uh, established a modern federal housing or public housing program targeting the inner cities. Um, conservative congressmen, out of fear of fostering dependency among the poor, 
um, saddled the Wagner Act with what is known as means testing. And we still ha- and we still have it today. Oh, we'll get there. And this pretty much kills any hope of implementing the kind of housing system that modernists hoped for. Income and rent caps kept the middle classes out of the public housing, and it also helped limit the funds available for the project. Um, and, ju- and just as Bauer had feared, public housing now was a poor people program with poor people stigma. You should add that even more than today, being poor back then was definitely seen as a flaw a of your care, failing. a moral failing of you as a person. You have done something wrong for you to not be successful. Because otherwise, what if what if bad things happen to good people and then I have to be scared? No, no, no. Better to blame the poor. Mm-hmm. As long as, as long as, especially if you're stepping over them in their shitty slums, you know. It's a lot easier to just say, mm, they clearly did something to deserve it, than to sit there and look at what you might have been doing as you were on your way uh, on Black Monday to, <laughs> to yeah. Wall Street. You know, like it was so much easier. Yep. It, uh, yeah, this this is just, uh, we see it time and time again. Yeah, I mean, the more you look at history, the more you realize things change and things don't change. Yeah, like, that's exactly it. <laughs> The players change, and sometimes the tools change, but we're... It's the same game. The fact is that, sadly, on so many levels, we're still fighting the same fights, playing, trying to win the same game that we've had since the beginning, since this country started. Since, in some things, since our species started developing civilization. Like, we have constantly been at this. Yeah. But it's not hopeless. <laughs> um, but yeah, back to our story. Yes. Um, so without rent and tenant income caps, um, projects might have been able to draw in a little bit of money for operating expenses. You know, they could have polished up a couple of floors and rented them to wealthier tenants, um, but they were legally not allowed to do that. So means testing cut them off from that possibility and left them completely dependent on the government to because, survive. Because by cutting out middle and maybe upper middle class people from using this program, you were lying now only on the poorest people. Well, specifically on government funding because the poorest people don't have the money for it. You know, there's exactly. no way to make it sustainable on poor people money. Exactly. By definition, there's not a lot of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so like they have to get government grants in order mm-hmm. to sustain, which might also not have been that bad of a problem, but then Cong- Congress cut off funding to the program. So that functionally killed it. As Congress is often to do with Public works programs. Yep. So what we have here is what's referred to as a two-tiered housing system. Um, so like the largely white middle classes got mortgages for their little cookie-cutter suburban homes, and the lower classes got the idea of public housing. Hooray! Yay, we did it! We did it! We fixed it! <laughs> that brings us <laughs> that brings to us urban <laughs> development, urban renewal, and our good old friend, gentrification yeah so, so to bring us back into to, towards the modern era <laughs> well actually no we gotta start but going back to narab and their little land commission scheme um their idea to beg the government to help them win the free market um took off really big amongst the rich and powerful uh urban redevelopment as as it was called caught on hard with 25 state legislatures passing their own urban redevelopment acts between 1941 and 48. The gas house district in Manhattan was torn down for redevelopment. This district has spanned 18 city blocks. It had schools, libraries, churches, and housed almost 20,000 people, largely working class. 
gas leaks and gang activity had given the neighborhood a bad reputation. And so, in 1945, it was torn down and replaced with the Stuyvesant Town. Rents averaged twice what they had been before, and almost the entire population, the original population, was effectively replaced and displaced. And this kind of thing happened a lot. This is why Manhattan is now the most fancy part of New <laughs> yeah. York. It wasn't always like that. Manhattan Whoa. was the exact opposite until it was redeveloped, and now and it the, is what it is today. Yep, the people living there didn't get rich; they got replaced. Is what <laughs> happened by rich people who came in and took the land. And this kind of thing happened a lot, and it was all government subsidized. Um, critics were pretty quick to point out the hypocrisy of the entire concept, but, you know, shut the fuck up, commie, you're standing in the way of progress. That's right, and if we know one thing, once rich people get land, they're very, very good at holding on to it. Yep. <laughs> and after that, the houses were pretty demoralized after this whole thing happened. I mean, like, they fought for so long, and then the government came up and said, we did it, and it was nothing. Housing, two-tiered housing, means testing, a lack of funding... Um, but some saw redevelopment craze as an opportunity. Our buddy Kathy and her comrades pointed out that if cities couldn't provide affordable housing to the many laborers they so desperately needed, then the slumlords would. The Great Depression helped us too. Thanks to the housing shortages sparked, public housing was starting to sound less and less like an insane communist plot and more like a common sense fix to a prevalent issue. Still, the houses were up against the owner class and their propaganda machines, and hope was slim. The offer to end their opposition to the conservatives' redevelopment schemes if public housing was included in the package. And it's easy for my leftist ass to judge this move harshly. Same. Looking back, I mean, really, guys, you sold out. But um, I have to assume the Housers knew they were up against serious power players and that gentrification was going to come no matter what they did. So might as well try to get something out of the deal, right? And then, and then uh, you know, a few years go by, and then public housing and urban development uh, had to take a seat in the back burner for the real war. Because this is about that time, about 1943, 44. You know the one. The big <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, but after that, when all those GIs came home to their wives, they'd need somewhere to settle down and raise, their baby boom, raise the baby boomers. And under the Truman administration, the Wagner-Ellender-Taft bill came to be. This is the product of compromise, crafted with the goal of providing housing and improving cities through public and, and private means. It was going to revive the 37 housing law by authorizing 500,000 units of public housing and a federal research branch to look for ways to offset costs. The whole thing would be overseen by the FHA. And it's important to note that all of this shit is happening as the Democratic and Republican parties are, like, switching platforms. Right. Conservatism and liberalism don't look like they do now. Politicians would cross the aisle frequently. It was not the same polarized landscape that we see today. Um, so now, the Housers might have agreed to drop their opposition of redevelopment, but the developers never stopped their opposition of public housing. Um yeah, during this time, rich folk did what rich folk do, and they put a bunch of money into lobbyists and propaganda and campaigned hard against public housing. Um, in 1946, Republicans won control of Congress. Um, again, these aren't today's R's and D's, but they aren't that far off. I mean, this was right after, you know, the party started switching platforms in the 20s, and around here was when the 40s was really when it sort of started solidifying into what yeah. it would be today. This was like the parties had pretty much officially switched, had but sort of swapped their meanings. It was still new, but they had 
that, that like that transition period was pretty much ending, and now they were solidifying themselves into their new roles but, of what um, they were going to be. They bring it up because it's important to note that like you know the people calling themselves Republicans then weren't exactly the same people today. Um, right. They, they so still Senator have... Taft um, is a notorious conservative. He also grew up in Cincinnati, and he knew what it was like living in the city, and he was well aware that the free market alone couldn't fix this. And so, notoriously conservative Senator Taft led a group of moderate to liberal-leaning Republicans in support of the newly renamed Taft-Ellender-Wagner bill, which I frankly cannot imagine happening in this day and age. Like, I physically can't imagine it. <laughs> um... Yeah. But yeah, it's just, you know, different landscape. They were united in their whiteness, I think. <laughs> and the bill got a critical boost of support from these from those Southern Democrats. You know, the ones um and so we have a so we have bipartisan support in the Senate and an unprecedented public support for a public housing bill. Congress might well have passed it then and there if it wasn't for literally, actually literally one dude. One dude. Jesse fucking Wolcott. For the great state of Michigan, represent the mitten, woo, hey. and made his career on opposing the New Deal in public housing. So that's what he did. I, I want to take a second here to also point out that we talk about the New Deal and FDR a lot. It's important to note that the New Deal, almost in its entirety, was an uphill battle for him. Despite the Depression, no one liked it. Almost so many people didn't want it. And he had to fight and scrape and concede to get all the things that we consider part of the New Deal were fractions of what he actually wanted to do. Southern Democrats did not want that shit. <laughs> they did not want it. It helped too many brown people, too many black people. They had too much money. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so so this dude Walcott's basically made his career on trying to fuck over the poor. Um, and he was very consistent at it. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. President fucking Truman supported public housing, but he couldn't get the congressional needing. Or yeah, so um, the, the reason Jesse Walcott was able to like actually do this is he was the chairman of the Banking and Currency Committee, and he was able to use that position to just keep this bill fucking buried. Um, President Truman supported public housing, but he couldn't get congressional backing to make it happen. So he started railing on this do-nothing Congress and calling them out publicly like, why can't you pass this damn bill? Nobody thinks it's going to work as a strategy, um, but it does. And Republicans drew on less controversial aspects of the TEW bill to create the largely ineffective Housing Act of 1948. Um, in 49, Truman was like, yo, fuck Congress. <laughs> His whole campaign uh, paid off. He was reelected. The people agreed, fuck Congress. Um, that same year, the Democrats took control. Um, but again, this is like a newly switched, like the Southern Democrats are a thing at this point in time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so now we've got a Democratic Congress, a Democratic president, bipartisan support for the housing, for public housing. It, it should be a cinch, right? Mm -hmm. so again, yeah. So, so now again, we're sort of in a situation that very much mimics right now. Yeah, <laughs> we it's have, a little eerily been, familiar, we, ain't we, it? We, we were fighting an uphill battle, and now here we are. We have the presidents in the office, the House is on our side, Congress is on our side. It should be easy. We should be able to get the shit done that we want to get done. But, but yeah, wait till you see how they fuck it up. 
This this was this was kind of my favorite so, thing. So and so, but no, but no, as we all know, even now today, i.e., turn on Twitter, Republicans have tried one la- tried one last ditch attempt to kill the TEW bill with a poison pill, and that came courtesy of, of Senators John W. Bricker and Harry P. Kane. Uh, both of them introduced an amendment to prohibit discrimination in public housing. Yeah. Yep. Prohibiting <laughs> discrimination. This fucks everyone all the way up. You see, the Southern Democrats were key supporters of the bill. They were also they were they were also a bunch of racist shitheels who support hinge on public housing being segregated. That's the thing here right now. Yep. Even even in the early days, while the parties had switched and Democrats were ideologically more where they are today, and then the Republican Party, uh, it was the it was a lot of the Democrats in the early days still came from the South, and thus. We're still a bunch of racist assholes. So yep. progress, but segregated progress. This is the Congress that is going to make Jim Crow, you understand, and enforce it for years. Yep, <laughs> and this is these are the people who fucked up public housing. Under the guise of progress. Yeah, so so the poison pill, the thing that the, the Republicans knew would kill it, is to prohibit discrimination in public housing. They said, fine, you can do it, but you gotta let black folks in there too. And, and it all of a sudden, the whole thing up. collectively... <laughs> Collectively, every Democrat spit out their water. <laughs> every single one coughed. <laughs> yep. Excuse me. Oh man, so so liberals knew exactly how this would look, but they figured the only way we have to kill the anti-discrimination amendment—it's the only way. Um, ostensibly pro-civil rights Democrats argued that even segregated housing would be better than no housing at all, right? To quote um, Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois, I am ready to appeal to history and to time that it is in the best interest of Negro, ra- of, of Negro race that we carry through the housing program as planned, rather than put in the bill an amendment which will defeat it and defeat all hopes of rehousing four million persons. I.e., this guy said, look, it doesn't matter if the blacks can get in there, because if we put this, because if we let them do this, it's going to, they're never going to let anyone get any housing at all, ever. Yep. Um. <laughs> it is. It is in the best interest of the still using the N word back in the day because that was the polite term because it mm-hmm. wasn't the other N word. <laughs> and so, Northern liberals and Southern Democrats get together and, in the spirit of compromise that makes this country so great, kill the anti-discrimination amendment. The Banking and Currency Committee got the bill passed. Wolcott. Finally, the thing is on the floor for debate. Yeah. So all that bickering and shit in the years leading up to it foreplay this was all the pre-argument shit that they got to do before they officially argue it isn't the government great (laughs) (laughs) remember we don't we don't have the even party line split yet right so the debate got heat so the debate was heated at one point 83 year old adolf sabbath and 69 year old ee cox threw hands on the floor of convicts on, on the floor of convict Congress, okay, like this is this is this is this is as if Pelosi and Schumer had balls. Like, right? imagine if they had the balls, right? <laughs> right? Can you imagine Schumer just? Can you imagine Pelosi getting down there in a mansion right now and be like, "You fucking vote the fucking filibuster, fucking out"? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Just the just just all the senators circling around Sanema and then with bags with. Fucking pillowcases filled with soap, like can you? It would be great. Mm-hmm. That that's what that's that was the Congress in 1949. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so the anti-public housing folks made one last stand to strike public housing from the bill, 
It failed, and the Housing Act of 1949 passed 227 to 204. Uh, this wound up being the only piece of legislation on Truman's fair deal agenda that Congress actually would pass. He managed to get the minimum wage raise and extend his Social Security, but uh, the goal of his campaign had been a full employment law, national health insurance, and a repeal of the Taft-Hartley labor law. All fun things I'm sure we'll come back to in future episodes. So there we have it. After decades of struggle and work, it was here. The Federal Public Housing Program. Truman fucked up the program immediately. 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 Or maybe it was the war. It could have also been the war. Uh, either way, uh, this, this was Korea in the I 50s? Don't, I don't even fucking remember. I think, oh yeah, it was Korea. It Korea was the, was the 50s, yep. yes. Uh, either way, he only requested a fraction of the public housing projects that had been authorized, preferring to save funds and building material for the war effort in Korea. Yep. Yay. Yeah. Another great war. Another great one. Totally good idea. No regrets. I mean, it, it'd, been, it'd been about 20 years, you know? You gotta have a big war around every 20 years in this country. Otherwise, people start getting antsy. Yep. Um, conservatives latched onto the opportunity to shave that number down even more. So there were so there were never enough projects to have any kind of real effect in the housing market. This is important because whenever progress starts happening, if anything happens that can delay the progress, a war, i.e. World War II, like what happened with the New Deal, it shuts everything down. We we like cannot keep our progressivism mm -hmm. through wartime back to peacetime. The moment we come back after wartime, it's this immediate regression to the old ways whatever it was and conservatives yep. fucking love that shit all it takes is a little bit of chaos and instability to cut any fucking yeah we just stop giving a shit about each other again and it is so easy to make chaos and instability it's easier to make that than to do the opposite exactly it is not hard to get the country into a war at all it's not and if you do it it stops any progressive momentum anybody has in the country the yep. New Deal, the the New Deal had so much more to it, but it was it literally stopped after World War II. Yep. So the decades of arguments and compromises had drastically changed the nature of what public housing was built. You know, compared to how it had originally been envisioned. Um, see, so early public housing was uh, community driven. It it came with like a holistic focus. You know, there were social structures and public spaces designed to foster that community but over the years this idea was just kind of erased um americans had had their socialist tendencies stomped on and eviscerated uh, the dream of the nation was dead and it was replaced by a newer much more selfish version exactly we, we were no longer a society made up of communities sharing time and effort to better each other's lives but we were a society made up of individuals, and individuals whose only responsibility was for themselves and their immediate family. Public housing project was supposed to be the fun foundational architecture of a thriving community. Instead, we used them as boxes to stuff poor people into. Just like the first time, these projects were crippled by means testing and were unable to generate funds for themselves, because again, it was only relegated to people who had no funds to help put back into the program in the first place. Yep. And just like before, all it took was a few simple budget cuts to kill the projects Im entirely. Pruitt Ico was a massive high-rise public housing project in St. Louis. Maybe, maybe the most famous. Oh yeah, when this it first, is like the textbook case that you learn about mm -hmm. in college. When it first went up, it was life-changing. Residents moved out of cramped tenants. The spaces, the apartments had great views. They had elevators, modern amenities, running water. But the project was doomed. 
These massive segregated buildings have been designed to house an exploding urban population, only to find all the white folks moving out into the suburbs in droves. Residents cite lack of funding as an immediate issue. Many tried their best to keep up the space, organizing neighborhood associations and craft spaces. But these buildings were, but they were fucking enormous. Like, I really can't reiterate how massive this building was. And the government that built them seemed to have little interest in seeing them continue, especially now that it was basically just black people living there. Yeah, so, you know, why maintain it, right? And so despite residents' best efforts, in the dream of Pruitt Igo became a nightmare of piss-soaked elevators, violent crime, and the project was torn down during the 70s. Like so many others, like, is, is often, is constantly the case. And, th- and, then we, and then you take that end snapshot, mm-hmm. and we use that as a, well, this is why it doesn't work. Yep. This is what it brings to your city. This is exactly <laughs> how the story was twisted. It was like, see, look at this. Black people can't be trusted. And like, from, from all accounts, like many of the residents were doing their fucking best. You know, they just, they weren't given the opportunity. To succeed, no. And it's like you... having a housing co-op, but you don't actually fucking own it or have any say, which is the difference between what we have and, you know, which is actually communal housing versus what they tried to pass off as public housing. Yeah. It's and, the autonomy. And also, it's, it's considering the size of these things, it was hard to find space to build them. The yeah. inner parts of the cities had long been since filled with factories and other homes and businesses peripheral to those Mm -hmm. and the outskirts of cities were now populated by the newly growing suburbs yeah remember that two-tiered housing system comes back to bite us in the Mm -hmm. end yeah yeah and after world war ii the suburbs fucking explode yeah so so there's this thing that you see where middle class people absolutely do not ever want poor people anywhere near them they don't want to look at them they don't want to think about them they sure as shit don't want to be neighbors and like this is true across race with black suburbs opposing the construction of public housing just as vehemently as some of the white ones but race was still a huge fucking factor (laughs) oh yeah white flight was in peak here yeah as you saw at pruitt igo and public housing itself was segregated as fuck even within public housing whites and black people were segregated which yep. in turn made it harder to actually build enough public housing to have people to provide enough to provide for the people who needed it in the spaces they were being built because you had to build literally double the amount yep <laughs> and like not only that but this public you know this segregated public housing was oftentimes replacing you know multiracial communities that had been torn down yeah, so it didn't really look good, you know? Um, civil rights leaders had no qualms about pointing this shit out, and they sued the fuck out of housing authorities, as they should have, uh, following the Civil Rights Act. Yes. Um, yeah, well, this act, and... and, and um, right, sorry. Um, and redevelopment uh, did manage to raise some property values, but it had more than its fair share of failures, too. Oh, yeah. Also, and also during this time, urban redevelopment uh, just kind of slipped under the radar. Yeah, well, everybody's bickering over public housing. Um, This little clause that lets developers just come in and swoop properties is just kind of 
going on behind the background? Um, and, and critics pointed out the redevelopment projects are taking inexcusably long to complete. Tracts of land would be torn down in the name of slum clearance, and then they would just lay vacant in development hell because, you know, people realized that prices of that property were only going to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, local governments would frequently use the program to build profitable structures. Um, so, yeah, between this and public housing being crippled, cities would see a net reduction in housing. Right, because, I mean, like, hey, you know, building a community pool is nice and all, but Where's it's still not money? housing. <laughs> it still doesn't give people homes to use that community pool. Honestly, even if they, a community pool would be better than some of the shit they did. Um, all right, so, so black neighborhoods saw the worst of the destruction because this is America, and of course they did. <laughs> Um, but non-black communities were also not safe, um, because this was about class at the end of the day. Um, also fucking race, though. <laughs> like, uh, it, in L.A., the mainly Mexican-American community of Chavez uh, Ravine, that was torn down to build the Dodger Stadium. Um, where it's at now, for, at where it's at right now, fam. Yep, where it's at right now. It used to be a thriving community, displaced, um... Boston, uh, there's a neighborhood, the West End, was demolished despite residents' insistence that their homes were not a slum. Like, they were like, please stop calling it a slum. The label uh, was applied by rich folks and reinforced when the city stopped providing basic services. Because that's all it takes. And we saw this happen over and over again in that a rich developer would want a piece of land, uh -huh. would decide to make a massive campaign that this area was a slum and that they wanted to redevelop the land. And that if the government would just give them the, yep. <laughs> the fucking money, they would redevelop and make your city better again. And they yeah. would work constantly. Like constantly we, it would work. We talked earlier about, you know, the word slum gets casually thrown around, but it doesn't actually mean anything. It's literally just a place where poor people live, and it's the wealthy who decide what poor means. So when rich people look at a neighborhood that they want, they can just decide this is a slum now. And if they have the power to cut basic services like what happened in Boston's West End, then and they even do. On the political right, you had critics like Martin Anderson, who in his book, The Federal Bulldozer, attacked the principle of government seizing land from one private entity and giving it to another for profit. In his view, that was a free market behavior. And I feel like maybe, and I feel like, based on my understanding of free market behavior, it most assuredly isn't. Yep. <laughs> In fact, it's the exact opposite, I dare say. It's the exact kind of thing that any libertarian would, should be afraid of. That's the kind of communist behavior one might be afraid of, the government taking land and deciding who it belongs to. No, no, that's not communism. That's state capitalism. Well, they were, take, totally but they were taking it from the black, pe black people and saying it belonged to the white people, so it's fine. Yep. So, yeah. so eventually public housing just sort of fizzled out. Um, nowadays, it's mostly like Section 8 and voucher programs. Uh, Urban renewal was dialed back also, with a stronger focus on the building and refurbishing of buildings rather than just tearing down everything that rich people didn't find pretty. Which, I mean, sounds marginally better, but not really. Yeah, like, the underlying process is still going strong. Um, thus, the den the gentrification that we see today. Right. Yeah. Um, developers spent very little time building public housing and a lot of time pouring this nation's resources into the suburbs. The exclusive nature of the suburbs and the individual ide ideology instilled in their residents 
would have a lasting impact on, on the American middle class and the hegemonic culture of today. And that and and a, par, a large part of why that is, and a large part of why suburbs were able to maintain the image that they were while building the culture they have today, mm-hmm. has to do with two things: NIMBY culture and housing associations. Now, housing associations have been a major player in perpetuating the myth that just having to just having black and brown neighbors, much less public housing anywhere near your home or even in the nearby area, is going to lead to the the price of your property collapsing. And, and they were a major reason behind the act known as redlining. Now, as we said before, lots of people in the early days were leaving the suburb, leaving the city, then moved to the suburbs. And now you might think, well, there had to be some wealthy black people who lived there, so why didn't they leave? Well, they tried. Unfortunately, housing associations enacted a rule called that we call redlining. <clears throat> Um, and you know we can sort of touch on an idea of racial cartels as well, but basically redlining, uh, while they weren't the origin of these policies uh, that underlies with our ever progressive and socially conscious federal government, <laughs> literally, um, many adopted rules in their contracts and guidelines that prohibited entry based on ethnic background or on the basis of race, ranging from explicit rulings, explicit rulings as is the case in the origins of HOAs in many places such as Texas and Chicago. That's right, the North, which is to this day, which to this day remains the fifth most segregated city in the U.S. That's Chicago. Fifth. <laughs> Number five. So, you know, maybe uh, when you're in the North, don't get a little too high on mighty about talking about the South, because we have our own problems here, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Putting up numbers. Putting up the numbers. <laughs> um, other housing associations relied on social and societal stigma to keep undesirables and to keep undesirables out and to keep their residents in line, regardless of any individual feelings a resident may have. It's an effective method of control, and has been a staple in keeping systemic racism alive and well. I've seen it myself, in cities to small towns. Um, I want, this is where I want to talk about the idea of a racial cartel. Now, the idea, uh, this idea was uh, presented to me in an article that I read, um, and I don't have, I'll, I'll find, try to find the Exactly. I'll provide. A, I'll put a link for it in the show notes, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the episode we'll, we'll notes. Um, but in it, it talks about the idea and that a lot of times back then, the use of race was used to create a cartel by using these societal stigmas. So you didn't have to the point that you didn't have to physically threaten anybody with violence anymore, especially especially not your white neighbors. Just the societal threat of you that would come if you showed a black person your home would be enough to deter them from doing it, from not being able to go to your local stores or being shunned to your local church. Like, that is that that is a very highly effective way of keeping people in line. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've read a couple of short stories about this exact idea, like, in school. I don't know. It's kind of like, it's, it's almost a trope at this point that, like, our immaculate suburb must be maintained pure and white, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it really is. Like, like it's, it's a fucking trope at this point. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, you've yeah. told me before about, uh, what, what was it, Benton Harbor? Yeah, Benton Harbor, one of the most segregated cities in the world, is here. In, in Michigan. In, in Detroit. The Detroit, Warren, Dearborn area and the Benton Harbor area, respectively, are uh, two of the ten most segregated cities in our country. 
exist in our own state here in Michigan. And uh, my family once looked in the moving in the Benton Harbor, and I can confirm that was accurate. When we, my parents, so my parents are physicians. So when we were looking for a home, we were, they wanted a home in a, de- in a pretty nice area. In, in fact, in the, uh, <clears throat> uh, shoot, I forget the name of the city next to Benton Harbor right now. Uh, I can look this up. This is, so, is going to bother me if I don't know Oh, my know God. It. I... <laughs> this is frustrating. Why? I know this. <sighs> I know this. Um. Oh my gosh. Why don't I? Why can't I think of a? Uh... Oh my gosh. Okay. Like we. Oh shit. This is actually deeply frustrating. Failing our Michigan geography right now. St. Joseph, holy shit. Yep. St. Joe. We so, okay, I'm sorry about that. That long little gap there, I was trying, I had to Google some information for you all real quick. So, we, my parents wanted to find a house in St. Joseph, and I remember being with them the whole time. The realtor kept trying to get us to go to Benton Harbor to look for a house instead. My parents kept saying, no, I don't, there are really any houses over there that caught our attention. They wanted to look in houses in St. Joseph, and this woman, like, did not want us to go there. She did not want us to look at houses there. And this is, I mean, my parents were, they were, they were you know, they're professionals. Like, uh, the racism, I realized then and there, the racism, the class has nothing to do with racism sometimes. That racism just is. Yep. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, they might not have even really been thinking about it that hard. Like, who knows? It could just be that, that that's just how it is. God, I know how much you want to bet that woman didn't even think she was being racist. Just well, like, she's like, you just want to be with people like you. Yeah, you'll be happier amongst your own kind, right? Like, that's just, uh, Yeah. Fucking. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, we have an HOA in Long Island that was sued for having a clause that required residents to be of, quote, German extraction. Unquote. Oh, my. It's important so to specific. note that this community was founded in the early 40s, around 1943, oh. by, well, let's be kind and call them Nazi sympathizers. That would explain yeah. the specificity, then. Or we could be honest and call them what they are, fucking Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> and what year was this HOA taken to the task for this clause? That was a blatant violation of the FHA, and that was passed in, ni- that was passed in 1968. That's right. The FHA passed in 1968. Do you know when the, this uh, housing organization was shut down, love? 20 fucking 16. What? That's right. The year 2000 and fucking 16. What? This town still was keeping people no. out for not being German. What? <laughs> Many How? researchers and even lawyers who work in real estate admit that enforcement of these conventions is often hard to find, especially in small communities where residents themselves or bring attention to them as many folks in these places want things to stay the same. Of course they do. That's why they live there. <laughs> I mean, Fuck. hell, the only reason this community in New York was out it was because a couple who wanted to move was having trouble selling their home with their archaic and racist stipulations. <laughs> like, they literally just couldn't get a white person to buy their home. They're and they're like, like wow, we have... Let me sell to someone who isn't German. And they're like, please, they're like, can we just get, and their neighbors are just like, not the Negras. And so, like. Oh, my God. Of German extraction, they're like, not even the Irish. Oh, they're yeah. not. Italians? Fuck no. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. Those aren't real whites. Come on. 
Uh, but racism and segregation ended in 1964 when MLK achieved his dream, right, guys? Yeah, no. It's, or it's, especially when we elected Obama. When Obama was elected, then racism was for sure dead. I'm pretty sure racism only exists in the South, thank you very much. Right. The South has a monopoly on it. Because You're right. the South is a unified, concrete it's thing that's a real entity. It's actually copyrighted by and the South. they own all up. the racism. <laughs> if, if you Google racism, it'll say TM, owned by the South. Yep. <laughs> Copyrighted by the South, circa uh, 1780. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We talk about Disney. The South has owned racism for decades, <laughs> hundreds of years. They've had a monopoly on that shit. It's time to end it. Yeah, they, they, yeah racism for all of us, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all of this to say that if we continue to ignore the flaws and the very bones of our institutions, housing, the prison industrial complex, everything, then the very way, and the, the, the things that, in fact, the very way we built this country will never be able to solve these problems. We won't be able to move past them. That's not to say that accepting them should be easy, but we, it has to be done if we are ever going to solve these issues. Yeah. Still, um, you can... Yeah, no, um... I mean, it, it would be improper to say that HOAs alone are responsible for the culture that is directly keeping us from creating affordable housing. But, I mean, like, in in more ostensibly progressive areas... Oh, wait, what? I don't understand this sentence. I'm sorry. I have to cut this little bit out. Um, it, it, it would be improper to say that the HOAs alone are responsible for the culture that is directly harming uh, our task of creating affordable housing, while simultaneously in... Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I wrote this very weird. I don't know why I did that. Guys. Sorry about this, folks. Okay. I wrote something in a very strange way. Um, well, the federal government has gotten rid of their more blatantly racist policies in this area, to be specific. The fact is that our culture perpetuates those segregation, intentional or not. Um, what I was trying to say before is that while HOAs did start this practice, it was based off of literal laws that were also passed by our government. And, like, um, it all comes from a very fundamentally like cultural place it's these these laws are not born out of a vacuum these regulations housing associate all the structures that are built stem from this very internalized desire or fear of like it's the sense that america has to be a backyard and a picket fence and a white family with a labrador retriever and, yeah and it's like i just oh man i mean the racist policies that informed the hoa as we spoke about were literally caused because one party decided that the only way to kill the bill was <laughs> was to make sure that it can pass segregated you know like if, if we killed if we if we don't allow segregation in public housing we'll never get it we'll and kill so the bill. and so the government came together to work together to make sure that that didn't happen yeah <laughs> and so they passed the law that let them be racist and hoas were just like cool that's a good idea yeah. and ran with it and so that doesn't excuse what they've done or the effect that they've had or that we should ignore that effect but we have to understand that this, it goes more than just some rich, it's deeper than just some assholes who had some picket fences outside of Chicago. Like, this is based off of what our government was doing. Mm -hmm. um, 
It's important also to note that the rise of conservatives, conservatism that started in the 80s with Republican hero Ronald fucking Reagan was responsible for a massive surge in homeless Americans with his widely praised, and by conservative, let's be honest, elitist conservatives. Uh, although they would say that such a thing doesn't exist these days because all elites are liberals, clearly. Clearly, it's um, the liberal elite and the, the billionaires and their redneck friends. <laughs> uh, but cutting off social programs, including cutting the funding for the, as we've already discussed, flawed and struggling public housing system by almost 50% while increasing military spending to the highest it had been since Vietnam. Well, this changed led to a wave of homelessness that we have never recovered from as a country and that has only grown more and more. So much so that even in good economic times, i.e. not this period right now, the levels of homelessness have never dropped off in any significant way compared to how it was pre-Reagan. Before Reagan, it was you could track how well things were going. Homelessness was sort of tracked by the economy. When things were looking well, there were less homeless people. When things were rough, there were more homeless people, as one might expect from looking at homelessness and an economy in a country. But after Reagan, it blows so far out of proportion. Even when economically we're doing great as a country, our homelessness is still record levels. It's a perpetual problem that is for some reason constantly blamed on the people experiencing it. Yeah. Rather than the systems that have fucked them over. Right. Whether it's economic prosperity, recession, depression. People be sleeping on the streets. People are sleeping on the streets and we're blaming them for it. Yep. (laughs) Um, Even the new thoughts on how to solve this issue of providing homes are still being used poorly and being twisted. The newer ideas in urban planning and renewal is transit-oriented development, redevelopment. So uh, what TOD means is that it's in, in which is all, and it's all too easily diverted into redevelopment-oriented transit. So what do these two things mean? Um, so transit-oriented redevelopment would state that we should build places and build homes based off of where people need to go in the city. So places around like bus lines and where public transit goes, and also expanding public transit as well. Where public transit goes should be where we should build low-income housing and mixed-income housing for people to live in. That's what it says. And it kind of makes sense in a way, right? You want to make sure those people have access to public transit, and if they are living there, that they can at least get to where most of the businesses where they probably will be working are, Mm -hmm. so that they're not on the edge of the city, and the business they're working at is in the middle of the city with with no way for them to get there. It makes sense, and I personally feel like it would be a good way to build cities. It would be feels logical. Yeah, it feels logical. And then you have redevelopment-oriented transit, which is that uh, that preys not on well-to-do suburbs and high-income white short-commute communities near cities, but on the already low, moderate suburban enclaves outside of cities and towns with effective racial and ethnic diversity. These areas are already accommodating a large share of low-income and immigrant families in garden-style apartments and older small houses, townhomes, that kind of thing. And instead of, trying to, instead of trying to create spaces in those well-to-do neighborhoods to allow for more diverse communities that span the economic levels, the decision is often made to instead renew low-income areas, i.e. the slums, our As slums, like if you them. will, by urbanization. And this ends up leading to our good old pal gentrification. Because, see, instead of making it so that poor people can live where the rich people are, they just decide to make the poor area look better for rich people so the rich people come there which mm-hmm. in turn raises the price of everything pricing out all the poor pricing people. out all the poor people and now so you just have you're still only displacing rich people. people but it's slower it's and slower less visible this mm-hmm. time 
It's the, so it's the same thing that we were talking about before. The same game, same tactic, just... They just get a little they, bit more subtle with yeah, it. Yeah, they, they just retool it a little bit. But it's the same thing. And again, when you look at it, you're like, but why would you not do it the other way? That's the way that makes sense. Well, of course yep. it does. But this is the way that makes money. Yep. So, yeah. It's, it is high time we acknowledge that real estate you know, developers and stakeholders have spent, honestly, the last century mm-hmm. <laughs> just pushing for their shit. Yeah, and so and and so in in states and governments provide grants for this stuff. Yeah, and so it, it not realizing that for outside developers, building up an area is not to help the people, but to create a place that will attract businesses and well-to-do folks to the area to receive a return on their investment. They're not building a storefront for low-income people to be able to start their business. They're building a storefront that's mm-hmm. nice enough that Starbucks, Hungry Howie's, chains want to come there and they'll get return on their investment. They want yep. you to build your art, you know, artisan charcuterie wine bar there so that they can get money back, not to help the people because it's a private business that needs money. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, it's like, it's, here's the thing, is that in order for a city or any settlement to develop and to prosper, um, the people who do all the work to make it happen should receive some of the benefit, or else there's nothing in it for them. Um, that doesn't really work if working class people are displaced and then businesses can't find employees or if people aren't making enough money, there aren't going to be any customers for these businesses that they want to bring in. Yeah. It just, it, the money has to flow. It, it has to be cyclical. People have to get paid in order to spend it. They have to have a place to live in order to live there. Um, but uh, it's like everything is run by people who only see their current short-term profits. How do I get rich people to come here? Instead of thinking, how do I help the people who already live here get more money? Yeah, and so this prices out everybody, and not and and everybody, and not just from being able to live there, but from being able to get any goods or services in the area. Yeah, because those are also going to increase to the point that they're entirely removed from that area, and now if they can work there, that's it, maybe. And all of this to shine up an area that was considered a bad look for this city and create the image of rejuvenation while actually doing nothing to help the low-income families and residents who were there initially. It's just, it's time for us to acknowledge the amount of energy and time that real estate stakeholders have spent pushing these concepts of covenants and restrictions for only one reason. Their profits. They cling to the belief that keeping what they used to call the riffraff, i.e., poor people, i.e. brown people, out of new housing development commands higher sale prices, and higher sale prices increase their net profits. It's it's just so clear that the home housing association industry's obsession with property values has divided us as a country, and their quest to keep housing consumers constantly moving up or downsizing, the real estate industry hopes to churn even more profit, even as housing becomes less and less affordable. If you can keep people moving from house to house to house, you yep. create money. Yeah, this has this like inability to have a place of your own 
without just being leached dry by predatory and uncaring landlords, it, you know, it, it has a cost on our tangible physical comfort, but also it affects us in intangible ways, like, as a culture. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's easy to see and talk about how, like, our culture affects these physical structures and the systems mm -hmm. built around them, mm -hmm. but, like, these things have an tr have a impact on us, too, because we live in them. Um, one of the most readily apparent effects of our housing system is the segregation by race and by class. Um, so like when I, when I started going to call, uh, when I started to call it at, e at college at 18, I, I moved to East Lansing. Um, so at that time, like I thought the wall Ravens back home were rich because they had like a farm and owned some property in town and a store. <laughs> um, and then I met all these like middle to upper class students and professors and administrative administrators and even politicians and that was that was my first glimpse of real money and the people who wield it and it's a whole other world. <laughs> like like in the city, you've got homeless people and politicians walking down the same street. And but but like out in the suburbs and in a lot of the country and small towns, people are just surrounded by more of themselves like if you if you never leave that little middle class bubble it i imagine it must be so easy to believe that nobody is that poor it or is. that rich oh yeah when i lived in when i lived in the suburbs like you know i i mean like i would see you know we would go into detroit sometimes so i would see some parts of detroit but like even that to me at the time was like an anomaly you know yeah. like that's not most things and people don't really live in these places it's just mm -hmm. old places that nobody lives in anymore but, but people do like but some of those people do yeah and the house not having a roof isn't a doesn't mean someone may not be living there yeah um god like that was one thing i couldn't a lot of the people i went to college with just would not believe how poor people in my hometown were and i people in my hometown will not believe how rich people in the city are <laughs> Like, you yeah. have to see it to believe it. Not everybody sees it. That's why I, I feel like, you know, having lived in so many different places, I feel like I have a unique perspective because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I also understand how it's so hard to get that. Yeah. Like, like, without seeing what I've seen, it would be hard to really piece it together, I think. Um, and to generalize even further, if, just think about what this constant integrative housing does to us. So many of us are just a few misbills away from being on the street. And then we wonder why everyone has anxiety. Like, the idea of living check to check or that, like, it's such a thin balance mm -hmm. is is crazy. Like, uh, most people are yeah. definitely a few months, a few bad months, if that, away from homelessness. Like, like for real. And we take it so for granted. We don't, like, it's, it's the water, mm -hmm. you know? And that's amongst the middle class. Yeah. I mean, that's that's amongst people who have housing, you know, mm -hmm. like that's that's most of the country is either wishes they had housing or is desperately working to keep what they have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know plenty of people in the suburbs who would if they didn't get if they couldn't work for three months, it'd be done. Yeah, it would be in dire fucking straits. And like and that's that's the suburbs, you know, like that's not even talking about restaurant and retail workers yeah who... it, it, it only gets harsher when you go down yeah when you go down the list that's like those are people who are 
on a general level have made it have success mm-hmm. i think so you have this like cultural anxiety right and mm-hmm. it has huge ramifications because we are all very easily manipulated by fear fear of other people fear of poverty fear of instability and this fear drives the worst in people it's so prevalent it's just taken for granted like some of the most well-off people in the world are terrified that they're going to lose their shit and that lets them be manipulated yeah and when you our society is so individualistic when you feel that way you feel alone Mm-hmm. And when you feel alone, it's a lot easier to scare someone into doing something. Yeah, it is. And the only way to counter this fear is through the stability that comes with a close-knit community, I feel. And I think you both feel this. Yeah. Way. Like, every single person needs other people. We're, we are, we're a tribal species. And a lot of people say that in the, like, ah, I need to only care about my family. Or you should only care about one person. But that's not what it means. What it means is that we need other people. Animals having a tribe isn't about them, isn't about the selfish need of only caring about one person it's that both the protection of each other is important but also for the indiv- the health of the individual member species of that animal being alone hurts them yeah and you can tell that like more than you can give it you can remove an animal from the herd and give it all the food it wants and it can still have negative effects on will have negative effects on that animal because yeah, it's not like, just like, yeah. any individual bee is only as healthy as the hive that it is a part of yeah. We we are not bears, solitary, wandering through the woods, keeping our space. We're humans, and humans are, we need to be groups. Our individual health is only as good as the collective health of our larger communities. You can put a wolf on a, pe- you can put a wolf on a closed pen alone with all the deer it could ever want. It's not going to be the same. It's going to suffer. <laughs> right. But yeah, um, we, we, we need people. We need people to lean on. We need people to understand us, to grow with us, to be here with us. Like, it's a human need. And, you know, you can't really you do, can't that do that if when everybody's moving from one box yeah, to the Yeah, and in gig economy, working from moving from one job to another, one place to another, one from city to another. City to city, town to town. Like, that community just never gets to happen because we're all transient. <laughs> We've been on this long journey. We've talked about the past. We've talked about where we're at now. And I don't want it to be all negative because this podcast isn't about everything being negative because we want to also talk about the future and our ideas about, I mean, not our, necessarily just our ideas, but. But ideas that. To provide hope for important. the future, I feel, is such an important thing to do, especially in today's era. There's so much. It's so easy to be drowned out by the negativity and to feel the crushing weight of. All of, our, all of the issues that face us right now. But we have to be positive and look forward. Otherwise, we'll never have a chance of overcoming any of them. So this is why I'm very excited to get to our next uh, segment, which is about potential solutions. Um, all right. So, yeah, there, uh, there is actually a way around our shit. <laughs> um, so let's, let's break it down a little bit, right? Um, what is, like... It, the fact that most of us don't actually own land um, is a problem. In order to get around that, we poor people need to be able to buy land. Um, it's the upfront cost that is the biggest barrier. We are 
all as a whole very good at consistently getting those dollars um we just have to spend them as fast as we get them in order to stay sheltered so the dollars never add up mm -hmm. terry pratchett describes the phenomenon pretty succinctly in men at arms you probably already seen the quote going around maybe you've seen the quote going around the internet but the quote is the reason that the rich were so rich uh vimes reason was because they managed to spend less money Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two, and then leaked like hell and the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those are the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that the good boots lasted for years and years, a man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while the poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. This was the Captain Samuel Vimes' boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. And this is exactly the mechanism that we see play out, whether it's food or housing or medicine. Things are more expensive when you're poor. And now let's build on this idea. And let's say you see that a good pair of boots cost $50 and it lasts 10 years. And let's say the cheap boots run you $10 and last one year. So if you have five people buying cheap boots every year over the course of 10 years, they will have spent a combined $500 on boots. Now let's say one year, because these five people get together and pitch in $10 each to get nice boots for the poorest among them, this person spends $10 on his boots that will last 10 years. The remaining four still need boots for themselves as well, so they each spend $20 on boots that year. The next year, they all get together and pitch in to buy another pair, and so on the next year until everyone has boots. By the end of five years, everybody has the nice boots, and they don't need to buy another pair again for five more years. Now, not only do they all have the nice boots, but in ten years, the group will have spent a total of $350 on boots, instead of the $500 they would have spent all buying boots for themselves. And the next time they want to buy boots, nobody's going to need to buy the $10 temporary boots. So they only have to spend $10 a year for five years, totaling 250 between them. That's half of what they would have spent if they were all still buying their own shoes, and so they would continue to pay in perpetuity as long as they maintain this system. This is the basic idea behind cooperatives. When working people pool their resources, their labor, time, and money go way further than it would have otherwise. Now, housing co-ops follow many models. Um, the one we're part of is part of a student housing cooperative system. Um, like many student housing co-ops, it follows the group equity model. So the entity that is the co-op owns the property, and residents pay a monthly fee to be members. So as a member, you have your space, and you can improve on your house while you're there, really make it at home in a way that you just can't do with rental properties. Um, so for us, we spend like 400 a month to live here in a large two-bedroom house with multiple gardens. Um, uh, we have chickens in the backyard. We've got, I, I've started doing all kinds of crafts. Um, we have a basement and an attic, plenty of public space. We have group meals. So, you know, most nights everybody gets a home-cooked meal and you only have to cook like once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. 
And we have really great roommates, a lot of whom are doing some really cool work in the activist community here, and I'm sure we'll have them on the podcast as well. Oh, they're definitely going to be on the podcast. It, 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 you know, when we want to do projects to improve the house together, it's not like renting. If you want to repaint a room, we can get together and decide to repaint a room. If you want to add onto our garden, we can add onto our garden. And it's not like owning a house all by yourself either, because we have help, you know? You don't have to... Yeah, it's those not tasks aren't done one, by just us. Yeah, it's not just one person maintaining the entire property. It's a group effort, you know? We have chores divided amongst ourselves, so that frees up a lot of our time to do other things, which is great for our housemates in the activist community, and it's good for us to be able to do this podcast here. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a strong sense of responsibility that you don't see in other housing system for students. Like, like I have gotten more responsible just living here, right? I we're, think. All, we're all part owners of this home. We get to live in this beautiful house because all the people who came before us made this place what it is. I mean, the, the particular house we've been in has been a co-op since the 70s? Yeah, it's like in the 70s. In the 70s, right? So, like, and, and I mean, I think, it, it, I think it was actually a co-op home even before that, like, People have been living here and using it cooperatively before it even officially became part of the organization it is now. So living here gives us something that is a rare gift in this country, which is we get to belong to something that was here before us. And, and hopefully we will can, be here after us. Yeah, and we can hopefully leave it better than, than we found it and for other people to enjoy because it will still be here in the future. I mean, there, there are decorations in this house right now that are, are, are that we're here that we all love, that we're here before any of us moved here. Yeah. That's to the point that some of us aren't even sure who it was that put it here, but but it stays here, and it adds beauty. and It's history. You know, it's and, a place and, and then, that has history. Yeah, and, and you get to be a part of it the same way, you know, as much in the same way that families want to do for their children and for their home, to leave something that can be persisted beyond you and to be a part of that. Yeah, so, so like for some, I imagine, for some privileged and powerful folk, the idea of anybody taking responsibility for a property that they themselves will never fully own is just hard to understand. Um, I think NIMBY folk have historically been quite hostile to the idea of group housing, shared equity, or the establishment of multifamily homes. And, like, Honestly, the same goes for tiny houses and huts and every form of temporary housing, except as adopted by trendy young rich people. It's it, why they build, it's why they have regulations that yeah. make it so that even if you own, manage to get property in a city, unless you build a specific type of home, you can't live there. Yeah, it can, is, it can be hard for people of privilege to imagine why anybody would want to do build a tiny any. home yeah <laughs> why why would you even think of buying a hut mortgages are so reasonable mm -hmm. um and the only explanation that ever makes sense to them is that trendy young hipsters are trying to offset their environmental impacts that's the only way they can possibly imagine any alternative housing movement um but like these alternatives aren't for the wealthy and the trendy it this this is about survival you know it's about yeah, independence. Absolutely. Freedom from the constant stress that comes from not having permanent housing. It's about making a better life for us as people so that we can finally fucking thrive and build a nation together that actually cares for its own. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's, it's about getting the boots off people's necks so that they can build a better life for themselves. Uh, you know, cooperatives are just one tool among many. Yeah. 
and co- cooperatives and worker-owned businesses, they haven't hit mainstream popularity yet. But I think things might be changing. I fucking hope. I mean, the things poor people do to improve their lives have always been looked down upon until that struggle makes its way up to the middle class. So when people, people realize they might not have all the answers, that we finally have room to implement our own solutions. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's so true. I mean, I, I'm seeing, I honestly feel like I am seeing more and more stories about, you know, farmer-owned co-op, you know, agricultural cooperatives and, you know, farmer-owned uh, agricultural networks and we're in even like some worker-owned factories. Like, I think that that is starting to become a trend, and I hope that we can keep moving towards that. God, I hope so. I and mean, things seem, yeah. Yeah. Th- things seem crazy today. <laughs> yeah, and every day, some crazier headline overshadows the last. But things have always been shitty for someone. Yeah. And the problems that we face today, housing security, lack of access to healthcare, racism, class divide, they're not new. What's new is our awareness and our understanding of how they connect. And also climate change, but, you know. Yeah. That's, we'll, 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 we'll deal with that. Okay. Climate change, I think, is like the fucking specter above all of our yeah, other problems. Yeah, it really is. The puppet master of it, behind all these strings. looming behind all of them. It's like, if you can't fix any of these, you're never going to fix yeah, the final it's, boss. It's, it's the big bad at yep. the end of the dungeon. But shit, man. Like, anything we do to repair any area is also going to help with climate change, you know? Yeah. But, but yeah, so what what's new is being aware of the problems. Things have been shit for a very long time for a lot of people, you know? But, but things have also gotten so much better over time. Like, we, yeah. have, like we have improved things. Yeah. And, and, and that's not to say I think so much we see from bad faith people who don't want things to change. We, we get people on the left get portrayed as, you know, sort of, I hate to say, negative Nancys, if you mm-hmm. will. We just don't see that anything is better or just trying to say everything's shit. And it's all bad. And that's not necessarily the... And that's not necess- that's not entirely true. There are things that are a problem. And we are critical of the world we live in. But it's because so many of us want it to be what it can be. We're critical of it because we know that it can be something that we don't need to have this criticism of. Yeah. If we take this step. And we recognize that things have gotten better. You would be blind to not know that things have gotten better. And that we haven't improved and learned. The but. only point where we really disagree is not that things haven't gotten better. They have. What we think is that things could still get better. Exactly. There's still more room for us to grow. And we can and will and must do so. But I believe that we can. Like we talked about, like th- there are paths. The thing is that for almost no sol- issues that we have now, are there no solutions? Because these issues aren't new, people have been thinking about solutions for these things for a while. Some of them are still applicable today. Some need to be changed. Some we need to pick some stuff from that works and retool what doesn't. But the answers are there. And I firmly, fully believe that there isn't a single issue we face today as a species that we can't solve with compassion, ingenuity, and hard work. Yeah. Like, I think, you know... What is so terrible about being right now is just that we have to be aware of everything. But this is a blessing. (laughs) You know, being aware that things could be better is a blessing. It gives you a way forward. Um, The knowledge that you are not perfect, you know, humility is a blessing because it gives you room to grow. The struggle that we have right now in our country is a blessing because this is what gives birth 
this is what creates new dreams of better futures. Yeah, if we were all either convinced that we had it figured out or resigned to the way things were, then we would be truly. Then we well, would be fucked. Then we would be well, our goose would be well and truly cooked, as it were. But as it stands, you know, the old world is ending. I don't think that it means that we who live in it are. Yeah. And and, and our and all of our growing movements only show that people do care about it and people do want it to change. So I, I think that and I think we can and we will. I'm I'm optimistic, I suppose, in that sense. But I, I really think that we Despite everything, I am optimistic. Yeah. Or maybe because of everything, you know? But yeah. yeah. Um, wow, well, that's... I think that's the end of episode one. We did it. We made it through the whole script. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> we did it. We made it through episode one. Well, I mean, thank you so much for joining us, and we apologize for how long it took to get here, but we're going to really try to be more consistent with it going forward i'm not apologizing you get what you get enjoy your episode (laughs) um i look forward and i hope you look forward to hearing from us uh in the future um i'm going to yeah you know if you want to we and we also you know speaking in this podcast speaking about our thoughts we want to hear your thoughts too so uh you can send us an email to kccpodcast at gmail.com um a Twitter and an Instagram or I mean a Twitter will be following and a Facebook page will be coming up shortly. And um yeah, I just feel really happy to have gotten this here and I hopefully uh look forward to speaking with you all more in the future. Um, yeah. I've 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 been Jonathan. I'm still Savannah. See you again next episode. But on Kitchen Counter Culture. See you later.